We have important things to do. It is the first Sunday of Advent, and we, I am warning you now, I am going to have fun for all of these Sundays of Advent. I have been having fun going through this all week. I normally don't have this much fun going through my sermon, but I am having fun with it. So whether or not you have fun is irrelevant. I've told you that before. If anybody else, if nobody else has fun, has fun on a Sunday morning, I do. So you're on your own. But we are actually going to start in Genesis for Christmas because I am not wired. I told you this last week. I'm not wired to do like the same thing year after year. So I can't just like pull out Luke 2 and go through it year after year after year. I would get bored. You would get bored because eh. So what we're going to try to do for the four Sundays of Advent is look at the work in the incarnation of Christ from a typological perspective. And some of you just went, oh, what? And I get that. It's okay. It's something we've mentioned before on Sunday mornings. I try to to define it and go through it every time I mention it. But as you read your Old Testament, what is happening is um, the big fancy theological term is typology. The fun way of thinking through it is what we call types and shadows. It's foreshadowing, if you remember your middle school English classes. So laying down reminders so that when you see something, you should go, wait a minute, I've seen that before. And then you should go back and remember what's happening in that section so that you can then apply it in this section. And then when you move forward, you go, ooh, ooh I've seen that before. And you can go back. So like the ones that everybody knows are the ones that we mention on a regular basis. So things like Genesis 3, where you're promised the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent. Um, that's a promise of Christ. That's a foreshadowing. That's a typology. Um, the prophet like Moses of Deuteronomy 18, the promise of a king from the line of David who will rule eternally from 2 Samuel 7. These are all the really big, obvious ones. Those aren't fun to go through for Christmas. Nobody wants to go through the obvious ones. I want to go through the ones that make you go, ooh, because that way, you ready for this? That way you think I'm really, really smart now. <laughs> Now, this is stuff that's been in books for like hundreds of years, so I am not the brilliant one here. God is the brilliant one here for laying this down. No. What we're going to do is go through some of the simpler, more obscure ones, because what I do want to try to do is not just have the specific types and shadows, but I want to try to put this in big picture terms so that as you see one big picture, you'll moving forward see another big picture so that you can... Goal is to have you think through scripture sometimes in terms of the airplane view, the 30,000 foot view. So is there a benefit for zooming in and just tearing apart one verse? Yes, but sometimes it behooves you to zoom out a little bit and make sure you can see the big events and the big things so that when you do zoom in, you keep an anchor so that you don't forget what you've done and you don't miss the forest for the trees, okay? That is what we're gonna do starting today. So we're going to start in Genesis 2, and we are looking in this section at the expanded creation count. And by the way, um, for my Wednesday night crowd, I know we just went through this a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday. Well, actually, I looked more like a couple of months ago. Um, You can almost throw all of that out. We're looking at this from a completely different perspective. So if you're like, I already have the notes on that. Completely different. We're going to expand on everything. So preliminary stuff that you need to know. Most of you will know a lot of the preliminary stuff, and the other advantage is in order to make sense of what we're actually looking at in this passage, we have to go back, so that means I don't have to recap it before we dive in. You know who that makes happy, don't you? Me, because that makes my life a little simple. So we are airdropping into the middle of the section, but that's fine because we're going to go back as we move forward at the same time. Sound good? Other warning. Again, we're going to try to look at this in terms of big picture. So there are going to be things that you may look at and go, Huh. I'm not saying they are perfect one-to-ones, but the theme is what we're looking at being carried forward. Does that make sense? If it doesn't now, it will be in a few minutes. So let's have fun. I'm going to stop rambling, and we're going to dive in with verse 15. 
So, then the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. See, if that's the first thing you start in, you should be made of questions at that point. So let's answer them, shall we? The Lord God took the man. Man? What man? What's a man? Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, this is, this is more than kind of a big deal. If you go all the way back to the uh, original creation count in Genesis 1, this is something that's expanded. This is something that is not seen there. No other um, element of creation gets this special treatment. The breath of God, uh, being made in the image of God, having a relationship with God. The creation of the man is set aside as something unique and very, 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 very important in the Genesis account. Something unusual, even in a chapter and a half of the Bible, has gone on here, and it is supposed to make you stop and go, hmm, why foretell would you do that? Why is this being given this attention? And part of the reason is back in chapter 1, in Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I'm going to come around already because something is being laid down for you in Genesis that is very, very important to how we're looking at this. From the beginning of the creation account, you are seeing God working, God accomplishing. And then as he's getting towards the end of that work, he creates man and woman in his image and likeness, places them in the creation, tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, why would you do that? Well, if someone is filling the earth with something, do you think that something is very, very important? Yes. What are they filling the earth with? People humanity, not just life itself, but life of people. They are supposed to have preeminence in this earth, which would be second to only who? God. Now, if you and your authority are filling a place, and you own it, and you occupy it, and you rule over it, what title do we typically give you? Yeah, you're, you're the ruler, you're the king. This is the picture, the first picture that's being drawn for Adam here, is that he is the king of creation, installed by who? God. Why? Because he is made in the image of God, given the breath of life by God. So as he rules, he's supposed to rule with who in mind? God in mind. That's the beginning importance of the man. But that's not all. So we're going to keep moving forward. So the Lord God took the man... And put him into the Garden of Eden. Okay, pause. Garden? What is this garden of which you speak? Well, again, go back to Genesis 2 earlier on, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now, okay. Up until this point in the creation, you have had what? You've had everything made, you've had the earth, you've had the land set up, you've had the land and the water separated, the sky from the water separated, you've had sea life, you've had sun, moon, and stars, you've had land life, you've had people. Where's east? <laughs> it's somewhere. Why is there a designation given, though? Because I don't know where east is, you don't know where east is, nobody knows where east is. East of what? East of something. Now, why is that detail included? That should make you stop and go, wait a minute, God is speaking in riddles and rhymes. No, it's a, we got to figure it out. No, no, no. 
It's a designation that this is something that has been separated out, set off to the side, something that has been removed and set off by itself. Beautiful. Now, why? Why would you take this garden and separate it out from the rest of creation and put the man there? That means that place is important. Now, pause for a second. The creation itself has trees and shrubs of the ground and things that are growing, but it, does, it is not a garden. If I told you there was a world out there where stuff is just growing, but there's also a garden, where do you want to live? In the garden, why? Because it's, well, there's food everywhere, but this is ordered. This is peaceful. This is secure. This is protected. Um, this is almost like we've set up a little separated off, what would be a good word I could use maybe, um, a sanctuary. That in the midst of the chaos of everything growing and everything running wild, we have this little place where everything is neat and tidy and ordered. Humanity would know nothing about this concept. How do you know where people are? What do we do? You ever seen aerial photos of the Midwest? What does it look like? This little patchwork, it's like this weird little quilt, and there's all these little lines and circles, and you, you, the lines are where they don't have the long irrigation rigs, and they use something out of the ground. The circles are where they have irrigation rigs that go across, and you can actually see them from the sky. It's kind of funny. But all these little patchworks, because what have we created? We've created homes and communities and farms and neighborhoods. We've looked out at the chaos upon the world and said what? This needs to be organized. And we've taken that organization and put it where? Everywhere that we are. This is one of the ways they can look for even tribes out in the jungle and things like that, is you can go flying over and see what? Signs of life, signs of organization, places where the chaos is pushed back. So you have this man who is supposed to rule over creation and extend himself across all of creation, and God has placed him not all over creation, but in a secluded and secure sanctuary from which he is to operate. Now... Why is he there? Because he is in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. He's going to work there. He's going to ensure that that order remains. Now pause for a second. What do you call a person who works on behalf of a deity? It's a priest. He's a priest. Now, why can we make that distinction about Adam? You guys are going to love this one. This is, this is the stuff that I have so much fun with. This is, all right, so hang on. All right, have my little nerd moment, and now we're good to go, and now you get to have the nerd moment too. You ready? Go back previously in Genesis 2. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. No, you can't find this. The flood destroyed it all, but that's not the point. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah. That's not where Puff the Magic Dragon is. Where there is gold. That's important. The gold of that land is good. The delium and the onyx stone are there. And everybody reads that and goes, okay, sweet. So these rivers that flow out of the garden are somewhere in the area where there's gold and onyx. Who cares, man? Why are you freaking out about this and making us read this? <laughs> Exodus 28. They shall make the ephod. This is the garment for the priest. What do they make it out of? Who wants to say the next word? Out of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. The work of the skillful workman. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends that it may be joined. The skillfully woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material. Of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. 
See, when you get to the priestly work in Exodus, and you see that the priests of God, the workers of God in his tabernacle, in his sanctuary, are wearing a garment of gold joined by onyx stones, your brain should immediately say what? I've seen that before. Where have I seen that? I've seen that in the garden. So the work of God amongst his people in the tabernacle, in the Exodus, is being compared to the work that God has laid down in the beginning with Adam as the extension moving out. So, whereas the failures come in with Adam and things have gone wrong, as you see God redeeming a people, creating a nation, giving his promises, you are seeing God hearken back to when the work was good so that as all of these things are moving forward, you have these anchor points. You almost have to think of them like, um, it's like Hansel and Gretel's breadcrumbs. Wasn't it Hansel and Gretel that had the breadcrumbs? Help me out here. Before the witch tried to throw them in the oven, that was that one, right? It's been a while since I've read all of these. You have to bear with me sometimes. What was the point of the breadcrumbs? You can go walking off into the forest and we'll have a way to get back. Don't use breadcrumbs, kids. The birds eat the breadcrumbs. Use rocks. Birds eat the rocks. Use big rocks. Just carve something into a tree. It's better. <laughs> these things matter. It's important. Now, those, that breadcrumb trail through your Bible is how you should be able to connect back so that you can see that the work that God is doing here is built upon the, God, the work that God did there, which is built upon the work that God did there. All of these things carry forward. And by the way, this won't be the last time we're going to make a comparison like this. This is what I meant when I talked about general themes. Is it a perfect one-to-one with the gold ephod with the onyx stones to the land of Havilah and the Delium? No. But is there enough there that you should stop and go, I've seen that before. Yes, that's my point. Verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man. Well, we're going to make a connection real quick. Why is he being commanded? Well, because as the priest of God working in his sanctuary, there are going to be some expectations. Carry this forward to things like Exodus 30. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offering or meal offering. You shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Now, God was serious about that because he gives that command in Exodus 30. Um, he commissions Aaron and Aaron's sons as priests. And after about 10 minutes of being priests, what do Aaron's two kids do? Ooh, let's go offer this, which is not the thing that God had commanded. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. Go team. Merry Christmas. <laughs> now, God was serious about his commands. Why? Because when the priest is disobedient, who suffers? Does God suffer? Is God up in heaven going, can you believe my priest messed me up again? <laughs> is that the problem? Hmm. When the priest is wrong, when the priest is sinful, when the priest is violating the precepts of God, it's the people that suffer. You see that with Adam and his failure. You see that with the priests of Israel and their failure. That's why God takes that command so seriously. That's also the reason why there's a command given here. You're a priest of God here. You have to take this seriously. Otherwise, that kingly work that you're supposed to do, what's going to happen to it? It'll be corrupted and destroyed. So we have to get this right. So what's the command? From every, I'm sorry, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Okay. Why does, why this command? So, like Wednesday group, excuse me. My voice is not wanting to cooperate this morning at all. So, for the Wednesday group, we talked about this. 
you do have to have some sort of testing for humanity, don't you? Like, there's no such thing as obedience without the possibility of disobedience. So you've got to give them something that they could do wrong. But why this command? Why, why is this the thing that would be such a big deal? Multiple reasons. First of all, who's in this sanctuary? God is. Again, let's compare moving forward to things like Exodus 23. I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So Genesis 3 drops the knowledge on you that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That his angel, the angel of the Lord is there. Which is one of those fun little pictures when you get to your Old Testament. You'll notice you don't see angel of the Lord when you get to the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, who is the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. It is the representative of God. The angel of the Lord shows up. And pay attention to the language. As you're reading your Old Testament, whenever you see angel of the Lord, notice the language that's used and the character that is expressed. So the angel of the Lord speaks of his armies. He receives worship. He talks like he is God. The commands and promises of God and the commands and promises of the angel of the Lord are basically interchangeable. So what do you think would happen? Let's, let's spitball an idea here. What do you think would happen if there was an angel of God who was not God, who claimed to have the authority and power of God and tried to sit on his throne? What would happen to that guy? Do do we have a name for that guy? (laughs) So when the angel of the Lord comes down and does all the same stuff that Satan does, but Satan is cast out and the demons with him and the angel of the Lord gets to like keep running this back. What does that tell you about the angel of the Lord? That there's probably more to this than just a regular old angel. So that command in Exodus that God will send his angel into the camp. You should listen to him. He will not forgive your transgressions if you violate the commands. Well, that means he's going to judge. That means he brings salvation. That sounds an awful lot like God. Now, this is one of the things Jesus is hearkening back to in the New Testament. It's one of the, one of the little place markers that's being laid down in your Old Testament. It's also one of the things that gets lost when we, we covered this when we went through Exodus, but it's one of the things that gets lost really quickly if you're, um, if you're just reading through on a skim version. Because if I ask you, how, how did God lead the people in the Exodus? What's your first thought? You, you go to pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, right? And you forget that The angel of the Lord is in the midst of the camp. It's like a throwaway line in the middle of the book that the angel of the Lord is leading them with the pillar. And you're going, oh, that's kind of neat. Because again, you're hearkening back to that sanctuary work at the beginning of God walking in the midst of his people. His people walking with him like Enoch did, like Noah did, like the, prophet, uh, like the priests are supposed to. That in the midst of God's work, his people are there because he has redeemed them and cleansed them. Now, all of that to remind you. So I'll give you this one easily. Why is this such a big deal? Why does Adam not need the knowledge of good and evil? One, because everything has been created how? Good. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And you could read that in any of the days. God has made good. There is no evil. There is no sin. There's nothing to be worried about. But pause for a second. 
just assume there was the possibility that there might be some sin. When Israel goes into the land, how are those borders protected? Like Israel, that small little nation on the crossroads of everything, what will keep them from being overrun by all these foreign powers and armies? God will. God will secure them. God will give them victory. We talked about this, covered this real quick with Jericho, right? March around the city and the walls will come tumbling down. How's that supposed to work? God will take the city down. God will conquer Jericho. God will conquer the land. God will secure his people. God will do all of these things. What's the reminder? That you accomplish nothing, that God accomplishes everything, but that also God is your protector. God is the one who will secure you. So Adam, enter into the sanctuary. Do not fear the knowledge of good and evil. Do not concern yourself with the knowledge of good and evil because God is in your midst. Who will deal with evil? God will. Who will secure your sanctuary? God will. Who will redeem and sanctify you? God will. This is the picture that is being drawn out for you. You are there as a priest. You are to do what? Serve God. What else should you be worried about? Do we send the priest into the temple with a sword? Why not? So I don't need to fight anybody in the tabernacle. I don't need to fight anybody in the Holy of Holies. I don't need to fight anybody at the temple. There's guards outside for that. I am here to serve God. I am here to work on behalf of the God who has called me. I don't concern myself with anything else other than serving God. And that's one of the reasons why I tell you, go reread Exodus and go reread all of those offerings. It's the stuff we all skim through really fast. When you're a priest and you show up at the tabernacle once Israel's built it for the day, do you know how much work you got to do? I mean, there's, we got to light some incense, and we got to bake some showbread, and we got to offer this sacrifice, and we got to offer that sacrifice. And remember, it's not like the sacrifices, like, it's not like you go to the fridge, and then, like, you grab the meat out of the package, and you open it, and you stick it on the altar, and be like, there we go, sacrifice is done. You got to go get the bull and you got to go slaughter him and then you got to go carve him up and then you got to do this with the entrails and this with the feet and, the, and then you got to do that with the lamb and oh by the way there's a goat somewhere and we're still offering incense and somebody else is baking bread. How much activity is going on in this tabernacle? It's worse than a Walmart on Christmas Eve. It's awful. You've seen the Black Friday videos of like Best Buy and Walmart. You know, they open the doors and they're Looks like the, the running of the bulls in Pamplona. People are being stampeded all for 12 bucks off a $20,000 television. <sighs> yeah, this is a problem. This is what the tabernacle would look like. This is the chaos, almost, of what it would be. And yet it's ordered and it's commanded. So if you just looked at it from the outside, you have no idea what's going on. It's just people running around. There's cattle mooing. You know, there's stuff constantly. And yet everybody has a job and everybody is doing their thing. And this is all the work of God. You haven't got time to worry about anything else. Welcome to Adam's world. Go into the garden, cultivate it, keep it, do what you're supposed to do. Don't worry about anything else because who has that? God has that. Now, quick exit ramp. This is part of the proof of Christ in his work in the New Testament. So, what will secure that garden? God will. Why? Because he is holy and he is good. And when sin enters his presence, who wins? He does. Now, fast forward to what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. What do you see things like? You see things like Matthew 9. It happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, 
Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. So Jesus doesn't, so the religious leaders come into town and they look at tax collectors and all the sinners and go, you people, you filthy, disgusting people. No, you can't come to dinner. Go away. We don't like you anymore. Jesus comes into town and goes, those are the people that need me the most. Come have dinner. Let's sit. Is Jesus worried about being corrupted? See, you're warned not to hang out. Your parents told you this, right? Be careful who you hang out with. You are the company you keep, right? You got those lessons. Why? Because as sinful, broken people, you get around sinful brokenness long enough, what do you start doing? Yeah. So you have to watch yourself. It's the, it's the old adage they used to try to teach us about, about TV. Be careful what you're watching. Stop. Turn off Donahue. Why? Because garbage in, garbage out. You're sinful. You're broken. That's how it works. God comes in. Are we corrupting him? No. Are we changing him? No, this is part of what Jesus is demonstrating is that I can be in the midst of all of your iniquity and I'm still clean. And I am not only am I clean, but I am cleansing you at the same time. Visual proofs of that, things like Luke 7. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this is when Jesus was being anointed by the, by the sinful woman. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman who is touching him is, that she is a sinner. Because the Pharisees saying what? Don't touch me. You're unclean. You touch me, I'll be unclean. Jesus' answer is, I'm holy and righteous. You touch me and I'm still holy and righteous. You're not besmirching God. You're not degrading God. And that's where things like Matthew 8 come in. A leper came to him, bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now again, what does Jesus need to do to cleanse the leper? Absolutely positively nothing. Absolutely positively nothing. You see this example with the, um, the centurion, with the servant, comes to Jesus, sends the representative, and Jesus come into the house to heal him, and halfway there he gets met and be like, no, 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 you don't come to my house, I'm not worthy of you to come to my house, and, the guy's, and Jesus says what? Oh, never, I've not seen this faith anywhere. Then Jesus says bippity-boppity-boo, right? No, Jesus just commends the man's faith, and the servant is healed. Jesus doesn't have to do anything. So the leper comes, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, in Israel, if you were a leper, you are unclean. No synagogue, no temple, none of that. If you come into contact or the near vicinity of a leper, guess what you are? Unclean. So Jesus touching a leper should mean what? Unclean, unless you are holy and righteous and undefiled and incapable of being defiled, in which case that leper is now clean. That's the distinction. That's the proof that's being made. What's being demonstrated again is the God who is in the midst of his people is not defiled by their sin, but is the God who is cleansing them from their defilement. This is the picture of the garden. This is the picture of the tabernacle. This is the picture that goes on in the Exodus. So when Jesus comes in, the point of that should be as you're walking around Israel and he's raising the dead and he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's doing all of these things, he's not just needling the religious leaders, but he's demonstrating something about himself. And that something is a connection to what? To all of, the, all of these pictures that have come before. So that God can be in the midst of his people in exile in Ezekiel. And God can be in the midst of his people before the judgment in Isaiah. And that God can show up and do all of these things at the Exodus. And that God can be in the presence of Elijah. And that God is not defiled by this because it is he who cleanses and he who is righteous and he who is beyond our petty sinfulness.
those pictures being laid down are demonstrated so that when Christ comes, you go, there it is. There's the demonstration that he is God, is that he is holy and he is pure and we are not. But what is he doing? He is redeeming and he is cleansing and he is making right what we have broken. What's being laid down here in the beginning of Genesis? The same idea. So verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Okay, why is it not good for the man to be alone? I mean, always remember, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to misbehave. You ready? Adam has God. What else does he need? Yeah, nothing really. So if you ever hear anybody goes, well, there was a, there was a spiritual condition and Adam, no, 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 Ron screaming from the room, throwing things whole nine yards. You know, the drill on that one. No, this has nothing to do with anything internal to Adam, that there would be some deficiency in him. This is quite practical. What's Adam's job again? Cultivate and keep the garden. But what's his job also in addition to that? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Single men, how you doing on that? Not so good. What is required here? <laughs> going to need to find a lady. Going to need to marry her. Going to need to make babies if we're going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's how this is going to operate. Can't just leave Adam alone and be like, do I divide like amoebas? How does, what, what's going on here? This is not how this supposed to work. It would be a little unfair of God to take Adam, put him in the garden, give him a job that he is completely and utterly incapable of doing. Agreed? Now again, fast forward because you get a picture of this in Exodus. Exodus 35, the Israelites, all the men and women whose hearts moved them to bring material for all the work, which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a freewill offering to the Lord. So remember the, the, Israel, the uh, Egyptians are so sick and tired of the Israelites and all their plagues that when it's time to leave, God tells the Israelites to do what? Ask of your Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver and all their good stuff. And what are they going to do? They're going to give you to you. And the Egyptians were saying what? If you'll leave, you know. <laughs> what do you want just as long as you leave? Well, Israel leaves loaded with all this loot. Why? Well, because we need an ephod of gold and we need onyx stones and we need gems and we need gold to melt down for the overlay of the tabernacle and for the, for the ark. And I mean, we need some stuff. Hey, who gave us all this stuff? Yeah, because God tormented them enough until they were willing to get rid of all of their stuff. Now, you have just received all of this loot after having nothing. How willing are you to part with your loot? Most people would say what? Yeah, I'm good. I just got all this stuff and now you want me to give it away. So what is God doing? He changes the hearts and minds of the Israelites. So they're like, oh, you want my stuff here? To the point that what do they do? You guys remember this part? Exodus 36. All the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. So in other words, God has commanded you to do this work on the tabernacle. God has gifted you to do this work of the tabernacle. You are in the midst of doing this work for the ta of the tabernacle on behalf of God. And you have to stop because there is something more important. What could possibly be more important? <laughs> you ready? They said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. In other words, the people are so busy bringing us stuff that we can't actually do work. Go tell the people to stop it. So they needed piles and piles of gold and gems and wood and materials for the tabernacle and fabric and garments of all, all the kind. And the Israelites were so moved to bring it that the craftsmen had to be like, make them stop so we can do the job God told us to do. That's the provision of God. 
God ensured that the Egyptians had it. God ensured that the Egyptians gave it to the Israelites. God ensured that the Israelites would give it for the tabernacle work. This is the work that is being foreshadowed here. You can't do this work. You know what you need? You need a helper, and guess what you can't do? I mean, unless you're going to Victor Frankenstein this thing and find some lightning and some bolts in the neck, are you going to make another person? Not to mention the fact, where would Adam get the parts? It's like one of my favorite jokes of all time is that scientists have decided they've discovered that they can make life. And so they challenge God to a contest and say, we have become like you and we can make life. And God says, oh, really? Let's have a contest. So the, the scientist says, absolutely, let's have a contest. You make some life and I'll make some life and our life will be better than your life. So... The scientist goes out and gathered, gathers up his dirt and brings it back to the lab, and God just goes, hey, wait a minute, you're cheating. Go get your own dirt. <laughs> yeah, I like that one too. So yeah, so this is not going to work. Adam needs help. Adam needs help from God. So let's see what happens. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Okay. Why? Do we need this rigmarole? Yes. Yes, we do. For two reasons. Number one, it mirrors the work of God. Adam is supposed to be a king, ruling on behalf of who? The God who owns everything. I'm coming out of the sanctuary, extending that dominion where? To take the garden and make the rest of the world like the garden. To bring that order of the garden into the rest of the creation. So in order to picture this ruling of Adam, how is Adam mirroring God? What was the, what was the agent of creation in Genesis 1? Do you guys remember? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the surface of the waters, of the surface of the waters, and then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. There was evening and there was morning the first day, right? God separated the light from the darkness, there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then God said, and then God said, and then God said, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so. Whatever the man called a living creature. That was its name. What is Adam doing? Demonstrating that same authority. The authority from God given to him, extended over which of the critters? All of them. Now, that's the first part of this. There's a second part of this. Remember at the very beginning? Breath, made in the image of God, having a relationship with God. Who else gets that? Nobody. Nobody else got that. And not only did nobody else get that, do they get to name Adam? No, God named Adam. Who gets to name them? Adam does. There is a distinction between man and the rest of the critters of creation. So, Peter is wrong. I'm sorry. You have dominion over the critters, not dominion with the critters. Like, like I have a joke in my house. Shall we? Who's number one child? Andre is number one child. Now, why is that funny? Because we all know when push comes to shove, is my dog more important than my kids? No, that's why they're here and the dog is at home. Even though there might be days he'd be better behaved. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Now, why? I love my dog. I've grown up with dogs and pets in the house my entire life. They're not people. They're not people. They're not my children. They're not my spouse. There's a difference between humanity and the rest of creation. It's a demonstration of the sinfulness and brokenness of humanity that we do what in our modern world? We try to blur those lines and elevate the created, 
critters up to the level of the humanity that has the breath of life in it. That's the problem. So this is the second part of this. So now what? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman a rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And that is why women are a pain. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. The woman said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Why? God took the dust of the ground, breathed, fashioned it, breathed life. Does God have to do this for Eve? Does God have to open Adam up or do we have to have the first surgery and then like do the David Copperfield voodoo trick to make the balloon animal human being out of a rib? It's how I always picture that, by the way, in case you're ever wondering, is, you know, God, sorry, (laughs) now you too will picture it like that until the end of time when you read Genesis 2. Why are we doing this? Why, Why this? The king will be fruitful. The king will multiply. The dominion of God will extend across the earth. But what will happen? It will cost him something. He must give of himself. He must surrender. He must offer. Isaiah 53. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for their transgressions. It's a picture of the work of Christ, the sacrifice that will be done, the sacrifice of the king who will rule and reign over all, the priest who is working on behalf of God is going to have to give of himself so that that work may be accomplished. That's part of the picture that is being laid down. And that's part of the reason why the verses are what they are coming next. Verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Some of you had that read at your wedding. It's one of our you know, great marriage verses. Um, Jesus repeats it in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10. It's important for multiple reasons. One, it establishes the pattern for the fundamental building block of humanity, which is what? Family. You want to destroy a society. We've talked about this before. You want to destroy a society, what do you need to attack? Families. I mean, no, no I'm not going to say that. Sorry. I'm going to take another sip of water because I'm going to cough again. This is one of the reasons why you see the modern world attack where it does and try to cast down what it does. If we can destroy how you raise your children, and we can destroy how you view your marriage, if we can elevate the critters of creation to the same status as humanity, guess what we've just undermined? Everything. Everything. We've gone down to the base level of the foundation. We've done what? We've sent off a charge, and we've destroyed it and cracked it. And what happens to everything built above it? I mean, communities. Society. I mean, I mean, small communities leading to larger communities leading to society in general is built upon what? Understandings of family. I've picked on this before. I haven't looked at this. I should stop using this as an example, but I can't help myself, so I'm going to keep doing it. Um, Years ago, in what was a former lifetime when I was getting an education degree, they still do these studies, and the Lord knows what they say now because, like I said, I don't look into it anymore. But for years and years and years, number one determining factor for academic success of a student was... Parental involvement. Parents care. You can get somewhere with that kid. 
I know we got some teachers in here. Um, Sunday school teachers have experienced this. If you've ever done, um, I've had to do this in churches. If you've ever had to do any kind of bus ministry where you're bringing kids in from community, um, you get a parent, you get a kid whose parents do not care. You can't do anything with that kid. You can't. You can't make the kid care. You can beg. You can, unless you get a rare kid who has some sort of internal motivation because they want something different. Vast majority of, of students, if you don't have parents that care a little bit. You can't make that kid care because who's, of all, who's ultimately going to hold him accountable? Not you. You can't do but so much. That's why my favorite thing is, I mean, you realize the bad kids. How, how long did it take us to figure this one out? So wait a minute. If I misbehave at the school that I don't want to be at, the punishment you're going to give me is to send me away from the place I don't want to be? <laughs> now, why is that a punishment? Why, was, why is suspension from school the punishment? Because we're sending you back to your parents who are going to kill you the entire time that you're gone so that you will never do this idiotic thing again. Well, if the parents don't hold up their end of the bargain, you just told the kid who didn't want to be there he doesn't have to be there for a couple of days. He's going to come back and say what? I'm going to do that again. <laughs> this becomes the brokenness. You want to destroy a society, destroy the family. You want to strengthen a society, strengthen a family. Build up those connections. And by the way, I don't just mean parent and child. I mean amongst siblings. I mean amongst extended family with aunts and uncles and grandparents. You want to corrupt everything about your world, start breaking up family. And by the way, I say this as someone whose family is beyond messed up. Beyond messed up. It is the grace of God that I am as functional as I am. Completely and totally. I, I had this conversation with Cameron years ago. We were sitting there at a Christmas with her family, and she was telling me something about them. I'm like, you have some people in this household who absolutely hate each other. And she's like, we do? I'm like, yeah. Like, I can see their face and look at the way they're talking to each other. And then she was just like, just shocked, because what do you do? You, when you're a kid, what do you tell yourself about your family? You tell yourself everything's great. And I could see some of the problems, and, and I hate it, but I was right. But anyway, <laughs> sorry. Why? Because my family was busted and broken and torn all to pieces. And so when I saw the same attributes in other people, just on a slightly nicer scale, because they didn't drink and curse. So, you know, they got dialed down a little bit. Then, you know, I was just like, yep, seen that one. Yep, seen that one. Yep, seen that one. I've done this camera and seen this one for years where I had this knack for people. Like when I meet someone, I can kind of tell you if they're completely out of their minds or not. <laughs> And I'm right more often than I'm not. And that gets me in trouble because I, I, mean, I, was, uh, I was 19. Cameron was still in the youth group at church and they brought this woman in to be a teacher for the youth group on Sunday nights. I'm like, you can't let her teach. She's crazy. Guess who had to have a meeting with the pastor and the chairman of the deacons at 19 years old because he was the problem? Guess who was crazy? <laughs> she was. <laughs> Guess who got an apology from the chairman of deacons six months later? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, why am I like that? Because I grew up with crazy people and I was around crazy family members. So when I see I'm like, oh, there it is. I know what that looks like. I've seen this movie before. That doesn't make me better. It just makes me more broken half the time. Why? Because fundamental units broken break people at the fundamental level, and it is only the work of God that puts them back together. It's one of the reasons why Jesus' teaching is what it is. It's one of the reasons why the encouragements are what they are, and that's one of the reasons why this gets read. Now, why is this institution then set up like this? Beyond all those ancillary benefits, what is it showing? Who made him? Who made Adam? Who made Eve? So who was the matchmaker here? It's not like Adam had options. <laughs> we've established that everything else that flies in the sky and walks on the ground is what? Not it. 
Here she is. She's it. This is the permanence of God's work. This is the accomplishment that God is bringing. Things like John 6. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's one of your hopes. That's one of your securities of Christ, is that as he has redeemed you, he has not forgotten you, and he will not forsake you, and he will not let you go. Why? Because I can see the permanence of God's work in what he has laid down. Do we break things? Yes. Does our sin corrupt? Yes. Do we distort God? No. He is holy and he is righteous and he is good. And he stands in the midst of our world and he is not corrupted and he is not changed. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, this is the great exclamation point. Why not? Well, because there's no pride. There's no envy. There's no sin. There's no lust. There's no coveting. There's nothing. There's just goodness and righteousness. Why? As a picture of what will come later at the end, but also because this is the why that God is accomplishing. What are they? We've taken two human beings, put them together, and they have no one else to talk to, and we have peace. What are the odds? Could we, could we replicate that today? That's why we have those, those guessing games. Like, what is it? Like, if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only bring three books, what would you bring? It's like, well, if you're stranded on a desert island, you can only bring one other person, who would you bring? And you'd be stopping thinking, like, well, you know, could bring, no, no, that would end badly. No, 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 that'd be me beating the death of the coconut. No, that's not going to happen. Because sinful humanity. What do we have here? We have two people on an island. It's basically deserted. <laughs> and what do we have? We have peace. We have everything that is good. Luke 2. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone on them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be sure all for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is the hope that Christmas is. This is the hope of the work that God accomplishes, that he will bring his peace to his people because that is how he is remaking them day by day. Why can I laugh with you guys about the insanity of my family? Because by the grace of God, I am what I am and I'm who I am. And I can look back at that and go, wow, that was so messed up. And yet I'm not sitting here going, eh, red rum, red rum. Why? Because that's not who I am. Might have been who I was. There were some moments, (laughs) but it's not who I am. Why not? Because of who I am in Christ. And this is the hope of the work that he has done and the hope of the work that he is doing is that he is bringing the dominion. He is conquering what is chaotic. Adam fails. Eve fails. Moses fails. Noah fails. Abraham fails. Christ succeeds. That for all the pictures that are laid down, they are imperfect by their very nature because they are sinful people. But they are pointing to one who is sinless. To one who is good and who is righteous and who is holy and who will not stand in the midst of sin and be corrupted by it, but will stand in the midst of sin and drive it from his presence. And that is the reminder of all of scripture. You get to the end and you see Christ. And you see Christ how? Victorious with his people because that is the work that he has promised and that is the work that he is delivering. Let's pray.